I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Four artificial human heads that hold the key to the greatest prison break of all time. There are people that root for these guys thinking maybe they did make it. A grotesque monster whose origins are shrouded in secrecy. When I first saw it, I have to admit I opened the door and walked out for a minute. <laughs> and a mysterious metal canister that sealed the fate of three of America's bravest heroes. Oh, you can leave that about. Across the United States in the nation's most revered institutions. Our celebrated history is on display. Wondrous treasures from the past. Bizarre relics. But behind every amazing artifact is another tale to be told and a secret waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. San Francisco, California. The world-famous city by the bay is also home to the most inhospitable museum on the planet. Alcatraz. Once America's most notorious prison, this looming fortress sits on an island surrounded by icy, purportedly shark-infested waters. Today, the former jailhouse is a museum documenting the history of this infamous island. But of all the objects in the Alcatraz collections, one set of artifacts stands out from the rest. Four makeshift dummy heads, painstakingly crafted and topped with real human hair. They are strangely lifelike, and they are the centerpiece in a 50-year-old mystery. Did these masks help destroy the reputation of America's most formidable prison? And what became of the men who made them? Spring, 1961. Alcatraz has been America's most secure prison for almost 30 years. Escape is believed to be impossible. But one man thinks he's found a way. Alan Clayton West is serving time on the rock for stealing cars. Four years into his stretch, he's landed a job as a prison janitor. Working on Alcatraz was a privilege. Mr. West's job was to uh, do maintenance inside the cell house. 
One day, while making his rounds, West makes a discovery that will change the history of Alcatraz forever. Alan West, working up above the cell block, looking up at the air vent, realized this may be a way out. West is sure the air shaft leads directly to the prison's roof. He shares his find with three hardened criminals, an armed robber named Frank Morris, and two notorious thieves, John and Clarence Anglin. Together, they hatch a plan to do the unthinkable, escape. But before they can reach the air shaft, they must find a way out of their nine by five foot cells. Built from solid cement blocks, the cell walls are impenetrable, except for one tiny air vent near the floor. This is the actual vent that they escaped from, and then used spoon handles to chip through the concrete to widen this hole large enough for a man to climb through. But getting out of the cell is just the beginning. Next, they must find a way to get off the island. Using a stockpile of prison-issue raincoats, they design a raft. They needed a flotation device to get them to San Francisco. 15 to 20 raincoats like this coat that you see here were transported into the cell house. They cut these coats up, sewed them together, glued the seams, and pumped their homemade raft up. The plotters hatch a plan to sneak out of their cells at night and construct the raft in a disused part of the prison. But there's a problem. There's no way they can leave their cells without their absence being noticed. There were 12 head counts throughout the day. The correctional officers were counting the convicts even as they slept. The solution they come up with remains one of the most masterful acts of deception in history. It uh, was very ingenious, and they'll do it right underneath the correctional officers' noses. In stolen moments between inspections, using scraps of newspaper, soap, and cement, the four plotters start to build fake heads, copying their own features in painstaking detail. They painted faces onto these heads, uh, uh, eyelashes put on, the, uh, on, the, on their faces. Clarence Anglin worked in the barbershop and had access to human hair laying on the floor, and it was perfect. At night, when they creep out of their cells to build a raft, they leave the dummy heads in their beds to mislead the guards. And they pull it off. It fooled the guards. For months, the dummy heads keep the prison guards off the inmate's scent, allowing the plotters to work on their plan. And on the night of June 11, 1962, the men make their break. They set out their dummy heads one last time. In the crawl space behind their cells, Frank Morris meets the Anglin brothers. But the plan's mastermind, Alan West, is a no-show. And there is some speculation that Alan West realized that they were not going to make the paddle across the San Francisco Bay. So he decided to stay behind, but the others made their break. And this is the actual vent that they came through into the corridor 
and then climbed up the plumbing to the rooftop of the cell house. Can you imagine their adrenaline pumping when they got up on the roof here? They've gotten out of the cell house, freedom in sight. So at this point, these three convicts climb over the side of the roof, slide down a set of pipes 40 feet down to the ground, hop a few fences, and enter the water. They take off into the night, never to be seen again. At 7.15 the next morning, an Alcatraz guard tries to wake what he thinks is a sleeping prisoner, only to make a shocking discovery. He uh, jumped back about five feet and uh, scared the heck out of him. He knew he had a problem. Three convicts have done the impossible, escaped. Soon, a massive manhunt is underway. Alan West is interrogated and reveals the details of the plot. But there is one question he can never answer. Did the men survive? These men were in the San Francisco Bay, very cold temperature. The hypothermia shuts your body down. Days later, a paddle and three homemade life jackets are found floating in the 50-degree water of San Francisco Bay. The authorities conclude that the men must have drowned. But to this day, no one knows for sure. Whether they survived, there's always a chance, I guess. And there are people that root for these guys, thinking maybe they did make it. And maybe they did. Alive or not, their daring exploit ruined Alcatraz's reputation as the toughest prison on the planet. One year later, the prison is closed for good. But today on Alcatraz Island, the faces of these four men remain, forever frozen in time. From breaking out to breaking code. On the other side of the country, at the U.S. Navy Museum in Washington, D.C., there's an enigmatic object whose workings would baffle the finest minds of its age. How did unlocking the secrets of this machine spark the creation of a computer that helped win World War II? Washington, D.C. The nation's capital is home to a museum dedicated to America's wartime heroes. This is the National Museum of the U.S. Navy. It houses a vast collection of guns, planes, and chilling machines of war. But hidden in this huge arsenal sits an innocuous object with a most unusual name. It is the Enigma machine. An Enigma machine resembles a typewriter. It has keys on the top, and you can flip open the lid to see all these different rotors in the back. The wheels, buttons, and dials of this archaic device are almost laughable compared to our sleek, modern laptops and smartphones. But looks can be deceiving. Seventy years ago, this machine was a cutting-edge, top-secret weapon that Nazi commanders believed would lead them to victory in World War II. That Enigma was an entirely secure means of communication that would communicate vast amounts of data um, between forces over a long distance. 
The Enigma machine scrambled important messages letter by letter, turning vital Nazi communications into a seemingly random stream of text. These encrypted messages would then be sent via radio to an operator who would type the encoded letters back into another Enigma machine. If the second Enigma machine was calibrated correctly, the original message would reappear. Without knowledge of an Enigma machine settings, decoding an encrypted message was a nearly impossible task. And the Nazis would use this high-tech tool to their deadly advantage. Summer, 1940. War has been raging in Europe for nearly a year. Hitler's Nazi armies occupy vast stretches of Western Europe. And only one country is left standing in the face of this Nazi onslaught. Great Britain. But their resistance is crumbling. For months, Nazi submarines, or U-boats, have been targeting U.S. supply ships bringing in food and provisions to the isolated island. This strategic move is designed to starve Great Britain into surrender. The United States was sending supplies across the Atlantic. And the problem with doing that was that the German U-boats were a constant threat to these different convoys. They would pop up out of nowhere and sink ships. It was hard for the Allies to know where and when these U-boats would pop up. That year, German U-boats sink over two million tons of Allied supplies, bringing Britain ever closer to starvation. The secret of the Nazi's success? The Enigma machine. This high-tech encryption device allows the German U-boats to coordinate complex attacks against the Americans in complete secrecy. Even if the Allies intercept a U-boat command, they cannot decipher it. For some intelligence agency trying to break into an Enigma message, they would have had greater likelihood to be struck by lightning or to win a jackpot in a lottery than to work their way into understanding what the message was. The U.S. supply ships are sitting ducks, and Germany's stranglehold on Great Britain is tightening. The fate of the free world rests on solving the Enigma puzzle. And one man is already fast at work. A brilliant mathematician who would go on to become one of the architects of artificial intelligence. His name is Alan Turing. Alan Turing was critically important to decoding some of the Enigma codes. He computated how one could go through all these different types of codes in the least amount of time possible. At a top-secret facility outside London, using captured Enigma technology, Turing and his team are successfully breaking Enigma codes. But they face a problem. They can't do it fast enough. By the time a message has been decoded, it is often obsolete. The team needs a faster way to decipher Enigma messages. So Turing develops a brilliant solution. One of the world's first computers. Alan Turing works with a team that produces a machine that's sole function is to work out what the settings were on a particular day. 
Aided by Turing's machine, the Enigma codes are being deciphered fast enough to act upon. The Allies can now use intercepted intelligence to reroute supply ships to Britain and avoid German attacks. But the Allies don't stop there. U.S. Navy hunter-killer patrols begin using intercepted Enigma intelligence to locate and destroy German U-boats in the Atlantic. Suddenly a surface ship would show up and, and start dropping depth charges on a U-boat. The U.S. Navy successfully turns the tables on the Germans in the Battle of the Atlantic. By 1945, the Germans are defeated and the war is over. The Allies' success is due in large part to the brilliant minds of the men and women who cracked the Enigma codes and put an end to the German U-boat threat. Which is why today, the Enigma machine maintains a place of honor among the venerated monuments at the National Museum of the U.S. Navy. 300 miles north at the Meade Art Museum in Amherst, Massachusetts, a very different kind of Enigma lies locked away. Is it a freakish abomination of nature or an elaborate hoax? Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Mead Art Museum at Amherst College in Massachusetts holds an extensive collection of fine arts and world artifacts. But locked out of public view in the basement vault lurks a grotesque creature. Its origins and identity are shrouded in mystery. Only a handful of people have ever gazed upon it. One of the few that has had the dubious privilege is the Meads curator, Elizabeth Barker. When I first took the job at Amherst College, I was eager to see everything we had in the art collection. And the room I looked in last was a little bit spooky. The room has a real aroma when you walk in. You can smell that many of the things have natural components. And if you turn to the side and look suddenly on one of the shelves, there's an absolutely terrifying figure there. 
when I first saw it, I have to admit I opened the door and walked out for a minute and asked what it was. Probably the first thing that captures your attention are the nasty little claws. And then you notice the tiny sharp teeth and the extremely disturbing desiccated skin. But its most unusual feature is its scaled aquatic body. Little is known about this half fish, half humanoid specimen, except its alluring name, the Fiji mermaid. This particular specimen predates the Mead Art Museum at Amherst College. We know that the college owned it by 1890, and we assume that it was acquired as a specimen for teaching natural history. Is it conceivable that this object is the remains of a rare aquatic species native to the South Pacific? Or the basis for the mermaids of myth and legend? The possibilities are enthralling. Which is why Barker is on a mission to find out what the mermaid is and where it came from. The first step in her investigation is to take a look inside the curious creature. In this x-ray, you can see part of the skull. We're guessing that this was probably some sort of monkey. But the creature's skull has clearly been stitched onto an artificial body. There is one very long wooden stake that runs the length of the figure from the neck to the end of the tail. And all through the piece, these bright lines indicate metal supports. The x-rays prove it. Rather than mermaid, the artifact is man-made. So where did it come from? And how did it get the provocative and misleading name, Fiji Mermaid? 1842, New York City. P.T. Barnum, founder of the famous circus, is the most infamous showman in the country. A master of self-promotion, he is known for his collections of over-the-top, weird, and wonderful curios from around the world. And he has made a small fortune selling visitors the chance to see these improbable oddities firsthand. When he stumbles upon a bizarre artifact from Asia with the head of a monkey and the tail of a fish, he comes up with a plan to promote it as a showstopper, a real-life Fiji mermaid. Barnum developed a brilliant strategy. Rather than simply present it himself, Barnum arranged to introduce this to the American public very subtly. He gives the artifact to a friend and has him pose as a visiting British scientist claiming to have found a real mermaid. When the press catches wind of the story, they run wild. Barnum puts the mermaid on display, sits back and watches the profits pile up. It was enormously popular. People couldn't wait to see it. In the first four weeks of its display, it earned the equivalent of $90,000 in modern money. But in 1865, the show comes to an abrupt end when Barnum's collections burned to the ground. But what became of the Fiji mermaid? Many wonder if it too met the same fiery fate. We don't know exactly what happened to the original Fiji mermaid. What Elizabeth Barker does know is that the mermaid in the collection of the Mead Museum of Art in Amherst 
bears the same name as Barnum's headlining attraction. How it came to be in the museum is still a mystery. We really don't know how it came here. But since we're not near a body of water, we can assume she didn't swim. <laughs> the tale of the Fiji mermaid and how it captivated the imagination of a country is a testament to the audacity and showmanship of one of America's greatest entertainers. More than 100 years later, the nation would be gripped by a very different spectacle, a life or death crisis that played out in the darkest reaches of outer space. At the center of the story is this small metal box. What role did this unassuming gadget play in one of the most dramatic space rescues of all time? Uh, here's the way The Space Center in Houston, Texas, is dedicated to the history of the legendary NASA space program. It has preserved a one-of-a-kind collection of the U.S. spacecraft that pioneered our explorations into outer space. But the most noteworthy piece in this collection isn't a rocket or a spacesuit. And its importance is not immediately apparent to the untrained eye. At first glance, it's kind of just an ugly metal box. This small gray canister played a pivotal role in the story of a near-tragic space mission, a tale that has been told and retold countless times. But relatively few have ever laid eyes on this life-saving piece of interstellar technology. What did this unremarkable spacecraft part do to earn its place among the celebrated monuments of the space age? The answer lies in an ill-fated voyage that took place 40 years ago. April 11, 1970. One year after the iconic moon landing, NASA launches its third mission to the moon. This bold new expedition will send a manned lunar lander from an orbiting shuttle onto the moon's surface to explore its mountainous terrain. The crew consists of veteran astronaut Jim Lovell and two rookies, Jack Swigert and Fred Hayes. Little do they know that their journey will become a legend for all the wrong reasons. The mission is Apollo 13. Booster, how do you look? Looks good, Flint. Okay, Sergeant. It looks fine. 55 hours into the flight, everything is going according to plan. But as the spacecraft approaches the moon, something goes horribly wrong. It was a loud thump. They said it sounded like a, a shotgun going off. Okay, uh, we've had a problem here. Can I say again, please? Uh, uh, here's we've had a problem. The incident compels Commander Jim Lovell to utter those now unforgettable words. Houston, we've had a problem. And there was no mistaking their meeting. Something catastrophic has just happened. A large oxygen tank in the spacecraft's main compartment has exploded. Back on Earth, the normally calm, collected engineers of mission control are stunned. The explosion that occurred on Apollo 13 up at, to that point was the worst thing that had ever happened on a, a space flight. The blast has crippled the spacecraft. The astronauts are rapidly losing power. And what's worse, their oxygen supply is leaking into space. And I look to me, looking out the uh, hatch, so we are bending something. So 
We are, uh, we are venting something out uh, into the uh, into space. Roger, we copy your venting. The situation is dire. If the astronauts remain in the ship, they face certain death. They needed somewhere else to go, somewhere else that had a life support system, um, something that was functioning. Their only hope of making it back to Earth alive is to retreat into the lunar lander, the small vehicle designed to shuttle them to the surface of the moon. They looked at the lunar lander as a lifeboat. That was the only way that they were going to survive the next several days that it took to get back to the Earth. But crammed into the small capsule, it quickly dawns on the men that they face a new and even greater danger. With every breath of oxygen that they inhaled, they were exhaling a poisonous gas, carbon dioxide, and that was building up in the spacecraft. The air filtration system in the lunar lander depends on special canisters that remove the carbon dioxide from the air. The problem is that the vessel is only designed to support two passengers. There aren't enough filtration canisters in the lunar lander to keep all three astronauts alive until they get back to Earth. The only spare canisters they have are in the main cabin of the crippled spaceship but they are the wrong shape. The canisters from the command module were not compatible with the lunar lander. The problem is frustratingly simple. The ship's canisters are square, and the lunar lander's filtration system is cylindrical. The astronauts have less than 48 hours to find a way to make the canisters work, or they will suffocate. Back on Earth, engineers at Mission Control work feverishly to come up with a solution to save the crew. Now let's everybody keep cool, see if we can get some more brain power in this We thing. got one here. But they are severely limited. Using an identical canister and the only tools that are available to the astronauts, a plastic bag, a tube, and a roll of duct tape, NASA engineers attempt to build an airtight seal that will force air through the square canister. After more than 30 hours of tense trial and error, NASA engineers come up with a design. They relay their makeshift repair to the astronauts, who urgently begin replicating the fix. With only hours until they run out of air, the astronauts wait to see if the canister works. And just in a matter of minutes, those dangerous levels of the carbon dioxide gas immediately started coming down. The canister is really what kept the astronauts alive. With their air supply restored, the crew of Apollo 13 can turn their attention to the near impossible task of guiding the lunar rover back to Earth. On April 17, they succeed. Apollo 13 enters Earth's atmosphere and splashes down in the Pacific Ocean. A tragedy is averted, and the nation breathes a sigh of relief. And today, this small metal canister remains safely preserved at the Space Center in Houston as a constant reminder of the power of human tenacity in the face of impossible odds.
While Apollo 13 rose to spectacular heights and landed safely, at Michigan's Henry Ford Museum, this futuristic creation, once poised to revolutionize America, crashed before it ever got off the ground. Just outside of Detroit, the world-famous Henry Ford Museum is an awe-inspiring repository of engineering marvels. As you make your way through nine acres of automotive Americana, tucked away in the northwest corner, is an artifact that looks nothing like a Mustang or a Model T. In fact, it wasn't designed by Henry Ford at all. A round, metallic structure, this massive object could easily pass for a flying saucer or even an alien relic. But it's not ripped from the pages of science fiction, nor is it a flying machine. Fireproof, flood-resistant, and able to withstand earthquakes, it is one man's vision of the home of the future. It's called the Dymaxion House. It's shiny. It's circular. It's got a peaked roof. Nothing about the exterior appearance of this house suggests a house other than windows, perhaps. Conceived in the 1920s as an inexpensive prefab dwelling, the ultra-modern house features innovations that were well ahead of their time. Space-saving rotating shelves, waterless toilets that would shrink-wrap waste for composting, downdraft ventilation that naturally filtered dust and impurities from the interior air. The Dymaxion House. He is a precursor of much of the thinking we now have in the arena of um, environmentalism. This invention could have changed the way we live as significantly as the motor car or assembly line. So why didn't it? Why aren't we all living in one of these amazing homes today? The answer lies in the genius of the Dymaxion House's designer, the eccentric inventor named Buckminster Fuller. He had interesting ways of looking at things. Any idea was worthy of some kind of investigation. Sometimes it's architectural, sometimes it's transportation. Many of Fuller's far-fetched ideas still have an appeal. 1945, Buckminster Fuller is a self-made inventor and architect obsessed with finding innovative solutions for society's needs. He would go on to design the geodesic dome and penned several books on sustainable living, popularizing the phrase, Spaceship Earth. But up until now, he's had very little success bringing his plans to life. But history is about to hand him a golden opportunity to make his name immortal. As millions of American soldiers return from the battlefields of World War II, the country faces a massive housing shortage. And Fuller has a solution, a design he's been developing for 20 years, the Dymaxion House. It's designed to be readily transportable. It's designed to be lightweight, but it sits on a very, very small foundation. Fuller's house is cheap, easy to assemble, and can be put anywhere. The Dymaxion House is the right invention at the right time. We, we know that there was actually a very, very positive reaction. An awful lot of inquiries came in regarding the, the, the cost and availability and pre-orders. 
So why does the Dymaxion House live in a museum and not on every one of our city streets? Fullest visionary, that's part of the problem. Visionaries are often very good at getting things started, but not necessarily in sustain them. Fuller secures the backing of a group of investors, but he cannot resist tinkering with his design. There's no getting around the fact he, he liked problem solving. People hid stuff when they saw him coming out of the plant because they knew there'd be just one more, one more adjustment. 1946, after months of delays and frustration, Fuller and his investors part ways. Production of the new American home grinds to a halt. And instead, the country builds millions of new square homes for its returning GIs. Buckminster Fuller's vision of the future, an America of shiny dome Dymaxion homes, is destroyed. All that remains is one intriguing example of what might have been. This is the sole surviving Dymaxion house. So this is it. You want a Dymaxion house? You're going to have to come here and look around this one. While the Ford Museum in Dearborn may be the only place to see a Dymaxion house, if you want to see the Mona Lisa, you don't have to travel to Paris. You can see this masterpiece right here in the United States at the Walters Museum of Art in Baltimore, Maryland. Could this possibly be the original? The Mona Lisa, Leonardo da Vinci's most enduring masterpiece. For centuries, she has enticed art lovers with her mysterious smile. I would say that the Mona Lisa is one of the world's most famous works of art. And this is the enigmatic expression, I think, that really draws people in. It leaves us wondering who this lady is. What is she smiling about, if she is indeed smiling? And it's a mystery. Most people believe the Mona Lisa hangs in the Louvre in Paris. But for decades, rumors abounded that the real Mona Lisa actually rests here, at the Walters Museum of Art in Baltimore, Maryland. Could this painting be the original? The mystery of the Walters Art Museum's Mona Lisa begins a century ago when the museum's founder, Henry Walters, purchased a copy of the Mona Lisa in a London auction. Henry Walters acquired the painting in 1909 at an auction in London through an agent. And at the time, in the uh, auction catalog, the painting is referred to simply as Leonardo da Vinci, Portrait of Mona Lisa. So why do some people believe that the original Mona Lisa now hangs in Baltimore? Could they somehow have been swapped? The answer lies in one of the most shocking art thefts in history. Paris, August 21st, 1911. A man named Vincenzo Perugia, an ex-employee of the Louvre Museum in Paris, does the unthinkable. Under the cover of night, he steals the Mona Lisa. He was a man who believed that this piece was an Italian national treasure, and he saw it as his duty to take it back to Italy. For two whole years, the famous painting is lost to the world. And it is during these dark days that rumor and mystery surrounding da Vinci's painting spreads across the world. Some believe an Argentinian con man masterminded the theft so that he could sell illicit buyers near-perfect forgeries. At one point, Pablo Picasso is questioned in the theft because of his relationship to an alleged suspect. 
Finally, in 1913 in Florence, Italy, Vincenzo Perugia attempts to sell the Mona Lisa, or what he claims to be the Mona Lisa, to Italian officials. Instead, he is promptly arrested. The painting in his possession goes back to the Louvre. But did the authorities recover the right Mona Lisa? In this tumultuous period of international art dealing, is it possible that Walter's 1909 copy held in his private collection was somehow switched with the stolen original? The theory had been put forward that a possibly a substitution had been made. 100 years later, using modern science, the curators at the Walters have a definitive way to answer these fantastic speculations. What the x-rays do is show the insides, the workings of how the paintings were put together. And these x-rays show something completely unexpected. One of the most fascinating aspects of this painting is not on the surface, but what's underneath. The image on the x-ray was really remarkable because it was a complete other painting. We saw a version of St. Veronica holding the veil of Christ. The painting of St. Veronica is attributed to a French artist named Simon Vouet. Most importantly, curators date Vouet's work to the 1630s, more than a century after da Vinci painted the original Mona Lisa. So the artist reused this painting to repaint a copy of the Mona Lisa. Whatever doubt has swirled around this Mona Lisa has been conclusively put to bed. The painting at the Walters is not the original. We would love to own the Mona Lisa, but uh, unfortunately we do not. The original version is in the Louvre. Authentic or not, the subtle expression of the woman in this painting is masterful enough to make museum goers stop and wonder what secrets lie behind her timeless smile. Mona Lisa's and Mermaids. Heroic deeds. Daring escapes. Homes of the future and treasures of the past. Amazing objects each guarding an incredible secret. These are the mysteries at the museum.